when we launched, we reached out to everybody and it was an all hands on deck effort where even our designer who went to RISD would cold reach out to John Maida, who was the dean there to see if he'd learn about Figma and then talk about Figma that day. And our head of engineering had worked at Medium, so we reached out to Ev Williams and we just took every angle, all hands on deck. And we did own design Twitter that day. I wouldn't say in the beginning that meant that it was all positive. It's really funny. I think about a comment when we first launched, one of the first comments we got back was, quote unquote, if this is the future of design, I'm changing careers. So it wasn't all positive, but people were talking about us. And from that, then we built out this distribution, started building a following, and then we really used content to passively stay in touch with these people over time, because this was not like a, oh, I see Figma, I'm going to sign up and use this tomorrow. It was a long time to build enough trust and credibility to be able to switch a full team over to using the tool. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth Podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. On today's episode of In-Depth, I'm super excited to be joined by Claire Butler. Claire is the Senior Director of Marketing at Figma. She joined the company when they were still in stealth mode as one of the company's first 10 employees and its first business hire. She joins us today to sketch out what she sees as Figma's five phases of community-led growth and shares tons of advice along the way for startups who are also looking to build an organic growth engine. In the first phase, Claire covers the biggest lessons from Figma's years of stealth mode and how you can start planting the seeds for a community when you don't have a fully formed product yet. She also unpacks the decision to eventually emerge from stealth after years of quietly building. In the second phase, Claire opens up the pages of Figma's launch playbook. From taking over design Twitter to marketing to folks who tend to bristle at traditional SaaS marketing. In the third phase, she shares how Figma leveraged the community to get folks to try the product, even if they weren't going to switch over right away to designing in Figma full-time. In this phase of community building, Figma built out its evangelist strategy, and Claire shares tons of tips for generating excitement around your nascent product. In the final two phases, Figma needed to connect the individual users that loved the product with a larger enterprise strategy. They didn't layer on a sales team until four years after the product launched and didn't add a paid product tier until another two years after that. Claire explores the ins and outs of these GTM trade-offs. I found that community is a topic that's rarely covered in lots of tactical depth or the advice is often geared towards later stage companies. Claire's advice is tailor-made for early stage startups. And there are plenty of actionable ideas to inform your own community strategy. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to be here. So I thought maybe we could start by going all the way back to the early days of Figma when you first joined. And maybe to contextualize it a little bit, you could talk about like what was the state of the company and product when you joined and then use that as a jumping off point. 
So when I joined the company, the company was still in stealth. So the team had been building for about two or three years before I joined. And I was the first person who was thinking about anything outside of building the product, besides still, of course. So I was the first business person who was thinking about marketing and how we would launch. And that was about six months before the company actually launched out of stealth. So when you go back to that point in time and you postmortem, what are the things that you think you got really right that helped supercharge some of the early success that Figma had? Yeah. You know, I think that we had a couple key principles on how we thought to ourselves, like, okay, how are we going to actually take Figma to the market that were really intentional? And that really laid a foundation for us of how we would eventually lead to a massive organic community-led growth engine. And I think some of those principles in my mind were, we did have the idea that we would really go after a bottoms-up, go-to-market strategy. We were inspired by companies like Slack who had done this, where you have these individuals who bring Figma into their organization. That's how they go to market. And that was something that we really strove for and wanted to set up. I think another principle that we really thought about was community. And that's really a theme that you'll see come up a lot in our conversation We knew designers, and designers are used to community. The design community existed before Figma. And so because of that, we knew how important it was for us to really understand the community and how important that community was going to be to our success with this audience. And then I think the third thing there is authenticity. Whenever you're talking to any audience, but especially a group like designers, they kind of hate traditional SaaS marketing. So they don't want fluff. They don't want to be marketed to or sold to. They want authenticity and how you're talking about the product and how you show up. And authenticity was really key to how we thought about how we'd go to market. And that really came through in all of the things that we did. I would imagine that community-led growth looked quite a bit different when the company was building from zero to one to then jump forward to Figma's position today. How might you sketch out those different phases? The way that we saw it was there are five different phases of community-led growth. So the first one was this idea of planting seeds. So when you have community-led growth, it's really a company-wide mindset and it has to start with the CEO. And that starts when a company's first starting to talk to users. So in this phase of community-led growth, you're really thinking about okay, how can I talk to users, ask them for feedback, and check in with them over time as we're building and making progress? No one is using the tool yet, but it's all about planting seeds and bringing people into the journey with you. And then that transitions into phase two, which is all about building credibility. And this is when you're ready to bring your product into the world. It's when you are able to talk to a group of people who are actually ready to start using your product, even if the product's not quite ready yet. And this is especially important when your target audience is technical or has domain expertise. It's about making them see that you get them and that you're innovating in the space in a way that they should follow you and what you're saying, even if the product isn't ready yet to use. And then the third phase is this idea of like, okay, you're launched. How do you get some early evangelists? This is about getting people over the hump to actually try and use your product. It's flipping these critics into advocates in building up a core, even if really, really small group of power users who just love your tool. And then the fourth phase is this idea of how do you take this group of people, expand the group of evangelists that you have, and actually start empowering them to do things like monetize. So this is when you're really introducing the idea of like self-serve revenue. These power users are bringing the tool into their organizations and spreading the tool to their teams without any sales assistance. And then the last phase is this idea of, okay, enterprise and scale. This is when you find these internal champions who love the tool, brought it into their organizations as self-serve or as free, 
and you're helping them unblock org-wide adoption with sales assistance, unblocking things like security, procurement, and admins. And I think those five phases would really apply for lots of different places, but that's definitely the five phases we went through with Figma. Did you only recognize those phases in retrospect, or did you plan and think about those proactively? Well, as that's reflecting back, it's interesting. <laughs> I just hit my seven-year anniversary with Figma, and Figma itself is turning 10 in August. And when I look back, there's actually some really clear milestones. Moving from planting seeds to building credibility was launching out of stealth. From building credibility to early evangelism, that one wasn't as clear. And honestly, that can take a really long time. I like kind of jetpacked that one over like three years because that's where you have this tipping point of where you're trying to get people to really use the tool. So that one, just eventually we felt it. But then going from early evangelism to empowering evangelists to actually bring it to the organizations was when we introduced self-serve pricing. And then moving into enterprise was when we brought on a sales team and introduced enterprise pricing. When I look back, it really did line up with company-wide milestones. When you think about that first 12 months of joining and focusing on whatever the community strategy was, can you talk about that in a lot more detail and maybe given how bastardized the term community has gotten in kind of a business context, what did it mean pragmatically? And why do you think it was such a big input into the early success around distribution? I agree with you. I personally hate the word community. It's so fuzzy. There's no standard definition. And who knows what it actually means. If I think about my definition of community and how I thought about it, it's not just like a set of programs or Slack group. I think it's an approach to how you build go-to-market that really orients around this idea of, okay, you're building a passionate user base who's going to spread your product adoption for you. And so what that looked like specifically for Figma was a couple things. One, you got to get to know the community. You really have to understand them. You have to understand how they think, what they want to hear. Then you have to build relationships in that community. And then you have to build trust with people in that community doing things that don't scale. So in stealth, you have no community yourself. You don't exist in the world yet. So what that looks like tactically when you're first getting started is, yeah, building individual relationships with people in the community. And when we did that, we're not public. So it's all through connections and honestly, hustle. So the first people that we talked to, and when I was starting at Figma, my first six months, I spent most of my time going around with Dylan talking about Figma to designers. That was pretty much the core of my job. And we asked those people for feedback. And we found those people. It started with some VC intros. And then we'd ask those people who we met to introduce us to other people, friends of those people we talked to. It was really funny. People in Dylan's UberX. Or I think about the first person we talked to at Microsoft. And that was actually my friend's ex-boyfriend who I had Facebook messaged, just trying to get a meeting with them. And it was really whoever we could find to talk to within the design community to talk to as many people as we could. And talking to people is great. I wouldn't say we were pitching Figma. We were asking for feedback. And I think that's key. And I'd love to talk more about that. But in that, so much of what we're doing in the early days, they weren't ready to switch over and use Figma full-time at this point. But what we were doing is we were building trust with these groups of people by getting their feedback, by listening to them, by showing them we understood them. And over time, some of these people did actually start using our product full-time. And I'd love to give an example of that and in how you do that by building trust. Our first team that used Figma, I remember we went down to Palo Alto and talked to a group Coda. So I'm sure you know the product Coda. We were kind of showing them Figma, asking for feedback, seeing you know what they thought of the tool. I remember really specifically the designer, Jeremy, was like, you know, we can use this. We can adopt this full time. 
And we were like, yes, finally, somebody's going to use their product full time with their team. We got one. And we were so excited. And Dylan and I were driving back from Palo Alto up to San Francisco. And we get this text from Jeremy being like, oh, shoot, it doesn't work. Bummer. We were so excited about this. And we were like, oh, no, we finally got someone to use the product full time and it's not working. We went back to the office and tried to debug everything of what could be going wrong. And it turns out it wasn't even anything on Figma's end, but it was something on their laptop. But our CTO, Evan, immediately drove down back to Palo Alto and debugged the person's laptop to make sure that Figma was going to work for them. And I just share that as an example of you've got to do stuff to really build trust with a very small group of people. And we're not talking volume at this point. It's really one-to-one trying to get just a few people to really build trust with you. One thing you just mentioned is so many of these dozens or hundreds of conversations you had over the first year or two. And so I'm curious, if I was watching you conduct those conversations, can you kind of break them apart into how you ran them and maybe why you did it that way? So it's interesting because the product and the tool of Figma, I guess just to think about it, okay, so you're a designer. And if you're a designer using a design tool, you're in the design tool eight hours a day using it the whole time. And so you have a really high bar in order to use a tool full time. And we knew even at that time that for a lot of people, Figma might not be ready for total adoption at a team level. But what we were really trying to do was hear what people thought, get them excited. And I keep on saying, listen to their feedback. So the way that we would run these meetings, a lot of the times, I wouldn't say we did like one of your traditional discovery and then demo. We jumped straight into demo. And I think a lot of that too, is because designers really want to try stuff. And with these early adopters that we were talking to, they wanted to understand how the tool worked and what it was. So we would demo the tool and we would show it to them. Then we'd go into things like their feedback and what they thought about it and things that they would want to see from the tool. And that became really important. But I think the thing that I always looked for was when we demoed, how excited was the person about Figma? Because we were doing something different. Like a design tool had never been built on the internet at that point. It was always an offline desktop app. And so it was really important to me to see, were they excited about this? Was this something they were interested in technically and also from a product standpoint? We really rethought some of the primitives of how a design tool might work. So seeing their reactions to the things that we were building was really important to me to kind of understand how excited they were and where we might be falling short. Going back to the comment that you made against doing classic customer discovery, can you talk a little bit more about why you went down that path? And I assume it's kind of balancing this selling and getting early customers, not necessarily just needing product feedback. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think a big piece of that actually comes down to how I see the point of feedback. And of course, feedback is so important to product development. And you have probably have lots of resources all over that you could look for on how to conduct interviews in a way to get the best customer feedback and then prioritize them against each other. And that's all so important, especially in product management. But I think another aspect of getting feedback that is equally important at this phase that I kind of talked about and alluded to earlier is this idea of using feedback to build trust. And what we did, especially in the way that we conducted these interviews was, okay, like how do we basically open ourselves up to be vulnerable with the people we're talking to and bring these community people along on the journey with us. So we were fostering this culture of transparency on where we were, what we were building, and 
bringing them along. And at this early phase, it's all about planting seeds with people. Like the product's not ready yet. They're not going to use it full time at their job tomorrow. It's about getting them excited, getting them interested and bringing them into the fold with you. And so getting this feedback from everyone, whether they're skeptics or whether they were excited or not, is so important and has really become how Figma still to this day thinks about building. We build with the community and we really listen to people, but that's both in product feedback, but also in just sharing how we do things and where we're at. And what I've seen is that's really how you build trust. And that was equally as important to us at this phase. What are the other important tenants of community over the first 12 to 18 months and as you got into launch, other than having these high quality conversations and building the sort of one-on-one connectivity between a given designer and Figma? Yeah. So everything that I was talking about was really in the stealth phase, right? When we were not yet launched, just talking to people. But if you think about the first 12 to 18 months, we go into launch. And I think the way that you launch and the way that you approach yourself to the market, where the community is all then looking at you, is so important. And there, I think the key thing that you're thinking about is, okay, how do you build credibility? And build credibility at this point, you can't always do one-to-one. How do you build credibility with a community? I think about that. And that to me is key into setting up the foundation for then both your brand and how you think about how you'll be interacting with your customers going forward. And there's lots of ways we thought about building credibility. That was the key next step after we launched. Why was that specific idea so important? With designers, like I said in the earlier, designers really don't like SaaS marketing. It's interesting. You spend so much time, any founder or a person in marketing who's getting ready to launch or launch anything, spend so much time thinking about things like messaging and positioning. That's what's on your website. You talk to press about it. That's so important. But at the same time, you also, for us, you're talking to your end user. And one thing that we thought about and we learned was that like we can spend all this time on messaging and positioning and we totally have to do that and be so intentional and think about every word. But at the end of the day, a designer is not going to spend any time reading our messaging and positioning. They're just going to go straight into the product and try it out. And so we had to think about, you know, how do we talk to these people in a different way so they understand we're not just trying to sell them BS. We get them. We are building something that's going to be useful for them. And we're like them. We're designers building for designers. Pulling apart that building credibility, can you talk about the activities or specific things that you did to build credibility in the eyes of the early users? I would say one that I'd love to talk about that I think was probably the most impactful thing that we did early on to build credibility was content. So I think, like I said earlier, one of the things I learned from talking to all of these designers in my first six months was pretty much no designer wants to talk to a marketer, which is funny. So I realized that I personally, Claire, was not going to be the one who was going to build credibility with design early adopters. Instead, my role was to actually enable other people and to create the space to have our designers and our engineers and other people be the ones creating credibility. And one way we did this was really through content. That's a way that we did this in a really scalable way. Figma itself is a really cool product, if you think about it. We challenged a lot of these old, arguably broken design primitives around how design works with things like the pen tool or vector networks. And it was technically hard to pull off. So those are the things that we talked about with our designers. We weren't sharing our messaging and positioning with them. We were going deep into the product with these early adopters um, who were interested in Figma and also engineers who were interested in learning how we did it. 
So we spent a lot of time creating technical content directly targeted at designers and engineers, talking about very specific things about the product. And I can give a couple of examples of what that looked like. I think our first blog post that we did was written by one of our designers, Johan, and it was called Grid Systems for Screen Design. And in this Grid Systems for Screen Design article, I remember Johan was so passionate about grids. He just loved grids. And he talked so much about the father of grids, who I I learned, Josef Mueller Brockman, and how Josef influenced so many things about how Figma approached grids. And personally, as a marketer, I'd never heard of Josef Mueller Brockman. Now, of course I do. But at the time, I hadn't. And I myself was not going to be the one to write a manifesto on grids and all of this deep thinking about how grids should work in a design tool. But Johan was, and Johan cared really deeply about this. And so my role in this and what Figma did is we just like opened up space for Johan to really go off on how he felt about grids. And that just was great. And people really resonated with that. Everybody was curious about then how Figma thought about grids and what that looked like. And it was that kind of stuff that we did that we did over and over and over again to build credibility with the audience. And we still do that kind of content. People just love understanding why we build the way we do. And that just builds so much credibility and how we think about building and the principles that go into why we do the things we do. When we think about the godfather of content marketing, I'd argue is HubSpot from 2005, seven. And so much of their content is like how-to content. But it sounds like the content and the angle that you all came up with was maybe a bit more esoteric or more geeky design content and more maybe interesting and less, I'm going to read this and change the way that I work kind of a thing. And I'm curious where that came from and why you landed on that approach. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it all also connects to the stage of the company. So yeah, HubSpot's great at scale. At this point in the company, we were not thinking about scale. Our main goal was to build credibility with a group of designers, especially design influencers, who were thinking about how they think about Figma. And I also think it's interesting just to understand designers. It might not be true of every audience, but designers, and I would argue a lot of different technical audiences, really did not want that how-to content. We also weren't looking for beginners at all. We were talking to very advanced designers and technical people who knew how to design. A lot of them had been trained in design or had been designing for many years. That's who our early adopters were. So we were talking directly to our early adopters and making them see that we understood them. And like I said earlier too, at this phase, the tool's not advanced enough for them to adopt it full-time every day. So I'd love to talk about our distribution and how we leaned into Twitter, but we had to just build relationships with them over time because it was going to take a lot to actually get them to switch over to do something their full tool for their full-time job for eight hours every day. Why don't you pick up that thread on, I guess, pun intended or unintended on Twitter? When you think about the design community, we were lucky, like I mentioned, the design community already existed before we joined it or before Figma launched. And so we learned there's very specific watering holes and places where that design community existed. And the biggest one where that was was Twitter. Designers joke about it, but they call it design Twitter. And that's this niche community of designers that really live on Twitter. And they talk about design, they live and breathe it. And I think that's also inherent to designers. I think about myself, and I'm not sure, especially as a person doing marketing, how much I would talk about marketing. But for designers, being a designer is inherent to who you are. And so a lot of times there's little separation between your personal life and your professional life because you just care about design so much. 
And so Twitter is really the place where people lived to talk about these things. And so what that looked like for us when we thought about how do we use that for distribution channel was really thinking about breaking down design Twitter. So for example, when we were first launching out of stealth, our biggest strategy was thinking about, okay, like how do we penetrate design Twitter, especially on that day, and really have all of design Twitter talking about Figma? And so we got pretty analytical about it. Dylan specifically built a custom script to really help us break down the different like nodes within design Twitter to see like, okay, these are the typographers. These are the iconographers. These are the illustrators. These are the product designers. And here's how much like influence they wield. And we need to talk to them and we need to understand what they think about Figma and bring them along the journey with us. And really, those are the people back to the journey that we were talking to for the six months, two years prior. So this wasn't like a early strategy. We'd already been building relationships with these people. But then on launch day, we really targeted a big influencer list and just also anybody who we could possibly who was on Twitter to really talk about Figma that day. And so when we launched, you know, we reached out to everybody and it was a all hands on deck effort where even our designer who went to RISD would cold reach out to John Maida, who was the dean there to see if he'd learn about Figma and then talk about Figma that day. And our head of engineering had worked at Medium, so we reached out to Ev Williams, and we just took every angle, all hands on deck. And we did own Design Twitter that day, and that then continued on. I wouldn't say in the beginning that meant that it was all positive. It's really funny. I think about a comment when we first launched, one of the first comments we got back was, quote unquote, if this is the future of design, I'm changing careers. It wasn't all positive, but uh, people were talking about us. From that, then we built out this distribution, started building a following, and then we really used content to passively stay in touch with these people over time. Because like I said, and if you look at Figma's journey, this was not like a, oh, I see Figma, I'm going to sign up and use this tomorrow. It was a long time to build an trust and credibility to be able to switch a full team over to using the tool. So Twitter became our distribution channel to re-engage with these people over time before they were using us. Were there other things that you did along this thread of building credibility that are worth exploring at all? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it came down to launching features like designers. Even today, we think about this and I'm like, oh, I can tell when we launch a feature if it's something that the designer is really going to care about. And so often, those are small things that a traditional, if I think about traditional marketing lens, I'd be like, this is a small update. Nobody's going to care about this. But I can tell you designers care. And that's because you think about you're in a tool eight hours a day, you click something and it takes one extra click to do something, but then you multiply that by the thousands of times you're clicking and it becomes a huge deal. And so I would say another thing that we did, for example, that we still do and still think about so much in, in our craft of building the tool is these small updates that really impact someone's life. And so we did those and we spent the time thinking about quality of life and thinking about you know how something works and then we would share those out in something that probably wouldn't elevate to the level of a big launch to other people did for us. And that's just another thing that we did to build credibility. What are some of the things that you did in this bucket, either in credibility or really, really early community building that didn't work or that you stopped doing and anything that you learned from those things? I don't know if it's like didn't work, but I'd love to talk about one that kind of had a moment in time and then stopped being useful. And like that one specifically was we did this set of activities that was really about getting people to 
try the tool. So, so much of the early phase was about building credibility, but then eventually we moved on. It was like, okay, credibility is great. We've got credibility, but people aren't using the tool yet. We need them to actually use the tool and get in there. And so we did a set of activities that was really about getting people to use the tool. We realized over time, we saw, okay, to get Figma sticky and getting people in over time and again, they actually have to collaborate in the tool. That became our biggest feature that was successful that people then would be like, yes, this is the killer feature of why I would use this even though you don't have X, Y, and Z feature comparison to use the tool, but you can collaborate and that's the magic moment of being in the same file at the same time that's so useful. So one example of an activity we did there that was targeted at this was called Pixel Pong. And so it was this live stream that we would do every Friday where our designer advocate, which is like the second marketing person, I would guess I would say a Figma, came in and he brought in four of his friends basically who were design influencers to compete with each other live in Figma in a really fun, lightweight way using the tool. We live streamed that and then people would like vote on the winner on Twitter. We don't do that today. I wouldn't say it had a ton of long-term relevance, but it was a way to get people to try the tool. And that became something that was really useful for that moment in time, but then didn't last beyond that. One of the unique things about Figma, I think, relative to a lot of products and SaaS tools of the last 10 years is that it's an example of like a complicated, big build, full stack piece of software versus I think a majority of SaaS that's been built over the last 10 years is one that begins with a wedge and then they try to build out over time. So it would be like, hey, I'm going to help a designer with some handoff problem they have, and then try to build out horizontally. As opposed to Figma, which was a long build, slow build, fully featured product, I would think that the way that you think about marketing and bringing those two styles of product to market are different. And I'm curious, are there things we haven't touched on of how you bring to market a full stack, big product build that maybe is a little bit different than most of the SaaS that was brought to market over the last 10 years? I think that's a really good point and speaks to also this phase of the company building. Like I said, I would imagine for places where they were looking for a wedge, you really orient in the early days on, okay, how do I get people to adopt this tool and use it full time? And for us, we did. We oriented on community as opposed to orienting on full-wide team adoption. We didn't inv- introduce a sales team to Figma until four years after we launched out of Stealth. We didn't introduce any pricing at all until two years after we launched out of Stealth. And so it was really about trial and getting people to come back again and again and again over time because we knew they weren't going to switch over yet. It definitely took a lot of resilience, I would say, to build that way. And it's hard. It's really hard to do that, especially when you come up against things. And you can just imagine anyone who thinks about this like, oh, I can't use Figma yet because I don't have XYZ feature. When you have this, then you symbols, then I'll take it over. But like, oh, actually, I need components or I need a plugin ecosystem. And there's all these reasons why someone can't use the tool. And so that's why things like Twitter, things like credibility, all these reasons to get people to think about you and to come back again and again became so important because, yeah, we knew they weren't adopting it full time. I would say it also, Figma was free for the first two years. And even today, we have a massive free user base. And 
people, if they weren't ready to use it yet for their full teams, you could use Figma for a side project. You could pop in, you could test it out. Designers love doing side projects. So that became important for us too. Can you do this for fun? Or can you do this for something that isn't as high stakes as your job to come back into the tool repeatedly over time when, yeah, you weren't ready to necessarily switch over full-time yet? Is there a specific way that you messaged to those early users? Because I would think one of the challenges is you have someone, you demo the product, they try it, and they're like, hey, I'm not able to sort of switch over now. And then you kind of lose them for years. Because anytime they hear about Figma, they're like, oh, I tried it, it's not any good. Was there a way that in the first year or two that you were framing it or a narrative that you shared that increased the chances that somebody's going to keep coming back versus try and never come back again? I would say that's always the case. People would come in, it wasn't necessarily ready yet, and then we had to re-engage them later. I think that key to how we did that was through a position that we had at Figma called the Designer Advocates. And so, yes, we had Twitter, and that was a key way we were talking to people. But we did a ton. We continued a huge amount of one-to-one outreach to people. And so the Designer Advocate at Figma is a person over time, like at first in your first phase of community building, you don't have any community, you don't have any fans or anything. But we did eventually build a group of early evangelists. In those early evangelists, we found one person who loved Figma so much and just believed in the future of it so much that they came to work for us. And we brought them in and they were somebody who had all the design background, all the design expertise, but just like loved the tool. And that person really became the face of talking about Figma to the community. And so much of this too, when he would have these conversations or he would talk to people, A, they're his friends. And so it was easier for him to have reasons to go back to them over time if things weren't ready. But I think what we did also was getting people bought into the idea or the long-term vision of a couple big pain points that they were facing. You can imagine, it seems so obvious when you think about it, but like design is the only tool that's, you had to share versions of things. You'd save files and you wouldn't know which file was updated and which file was broken. So with an early adopter audience, we did get people bought into the vision and bringing them along in the journey with us. So not necessarily even pitching it as, hey, can you use this tool full-time tomorrow? There's no hard sales pitch here, right? One of the things this first designer advocate, his name was Bryn, taught me really early that really stuck with me was, don't be thirsty. And I know that that's a funny phrase, but it wasn't ever about the hard sell. We were getting people to try it and then try it again. And so much of this lightweight, fun stuff became important because, yeah, we weren't ready for the hard sell at this point. And so we never did it. Maybe we could spend a minute or two talking about that designer advocate role. And maybe when you chose to hire the person, where did you find Bryn? Yeah, that's a fun story. On Twitter one day, we were just like, we should get some of our users. At this point, maybe we're six months post-launch. And like, we should get some of our users together who like Figma and just like get them to talk. And so I think we tweeted something out being like, hey, anybody want to come over to the office for pizza? (laughs) Like very lightweight. And so a couple people did. I think we had 10 people come over and have lunch with us. And Bren was one of those people. And he was just geeking out about Figma and just how cool it was and all the things we could do with it. That's how we found him. He came to us. And I would actually say, as the designer advocate role expanded, and today that team's growing globally and is a pretty large team within our marketing organization, usually they come to us. It's not something that we like go looking for. Those people generally come to us. Before we kind of shift slightly, is there anything else if someone listening is thinking about hiring their first advocate 
Anything else they should be thinking about that in the recruiting process in what to look for that'll make somebody really successful in that role? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is passion, passion for what you have currently and passion for the space. That to me is the most important thing. One thing that we found that is a challenge in this role is that, and I would imagine be a challenge in, in any role where someone's making this kind of transition is these people are great designers and they're switching by doing this, they're switching their jobs from spending all of their time designing to talking to people about design. They still design things, but they have to make that switch. And so you've got to find someone who also is excited about that and who wants to make that switch and help people and is motivated by that instead of being motivated by actually being in the tool every day. And so I think that that's a key kind of thing that we think about a lot when we're hiring designer advocates. Zooming out slightly just from sort of the marketing and go-to-market function in the early days, was there anything that you or Dylan or someone else did in the company that allowed it to sustain energy and rate of velocity when it was such a long build to kind of get to that true inflection where people are the classic pulling it out of your hands, everybody's telling everyone? It took years to get to that point. And I think that there's something tricky about motivating a team as you're kind of wandering and working towards this kind of inflection point that may be literally four or five years later. When I joined, we were six months out of going out of stealth. And I know that part of the reason why we chose to go out of stealth was team motivation, because you're right. If you're just tinkering and building without really that much user feedback all day, every day, it is hard to stay motivated for such a long build. And they'd been building for three years before I got there. And so one of the things that became really important was we wanted to get out of stealth. We wanted to shift from building behind closed doors privately to being in a point where this was in the hands of the community so that we could be getting more real-time feedback for people, even though we knew the product wasn't ready. For example, we knew it was very obvious to me that the most important feature of Figma was multiplayer, the ability to co-edit a file at the same time. We could build a tool and it could be great, but the thing that was most important, that was it. That was the key to our whole value proposition. And that was not ready when we launched. We launched without multiplayer. We knew that that was missing, but it became more important to get out in public than to be behind closed doors. And I think that does take a shift of thinking from, oh, this has to be perfect before I launch it to, okay, we're not ready yet, but we're going to launch it anyway. And we're going to build it with our community because that became so much more motivating once we were out in the open, as opposed to trying to do it behind closed doors. Did you arbitrarily pick a date or how did you actually decide after multiple years of building in stealth that it was time to share more about it? I think there was a large desire, generally speaking, to be like, okay, yes, we want to we want to go out of stealth. But the two things that we thought about to kind of, quote unquote, be ready to come out of stealth were, first of all, I didn't want for us to launch and for people to just be like, not have anything to say about the tool, to just like there to be crickets. And so one of the things I really looked at was in these these meetings that we did with all of these designers, how excited were they when they saw the tool? And I remember there were a series of meetings where over time, people would literally push Dylan out of the way from the keyboard that he was doing during the demo to test it out themselves because they didn't really believe that it was working. And to me, when I saw that, I was like, okay, people are like think this is cool and people want to try this even though it's not ready yet. 
So that was one for me where I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting to people. And then I think the second big thing, and this was a push from our board was, okay, yes, I know it's so hard to get people to use this full time. Can you get anyone? (laughs) Like literally, can you get five teams, one team to use this full time? And so, so much of what we were doing was trying to see like, could we do that? And eventually, yeah, we did. Like I mentioned, Coda was the first one. And we worked really one-on-one to get just a handful of others. But once we saw that, we gained enough confidence that it was ready to go out into the public. Do you think that the call it stealth strategy or whatever term you want to use for how you approached it all, in hindsight, do you think it was right? Or if it wasn't really built in stealth and you kind of were always public about it, that that may have been a better strategy? Yeah, that's an interesting question to compare because I guess I would say we were able to have a really big moment when we launched where people were able to be like, this is so cool. I want to see this. I'm trying this. Everybody talked about it that day. Everybody wanted to get in and we're able to like kind of have a big moment. And I found it's really helpful in when you have a really crowded market and lots of things going on, being able to gather everything together and have moments is a really good way to kind of rise above the noise. And so I'm a big fan of the moments thing. I would say that probably if you were to, I think Dylan has a lot of opinions on this, but I think we all feel like we might have wanted to have those moments earlier just because it was hard in those early days and it was hard on the team to be just building in stealth for such a long time. And so it is a wonder of like, oh, could we have had that moment earlier and just make it move faster? I think that that's the back and forth that you think about. Because I do think you can be definitely be in stealth too long and like be like, okay, like we got to get this out there in people's hands. And doing that as soon as you can is important. But yeah, the moment helps for sure. Did you waitlist the product or when you came out of stealth, anybody could take it for a spin? Yeah, when we did come out of stealth, we did. And so we launched it as a beta. It was a closed beta where people had to like sign up and have a waitlist. That's one thing that I probably would change. I think I would have just opened it up if I could do it again. It was nice. It was nice to have a waitlist. It made us feel good. But I think I probably would have switched it. We waited until that multiplayer feature was ready to go out of beta just because it, in my mind, I was like, this product is not finished. We got to call it a beta. But I wonder, I think I would have made it an open beta if we could do it again, because there was no reason not to get as many people into the tools we could just to increase our velocity of feedback and increase the velocity of people using the tool. Either right after you officially had this launch moment, or maybe in the six months or 12 months before that, in all of these customer conversations and all of this credibility building, I assume you were just had like an unbelievable amount of customer feedback and customer asks. And at the same time, the product surface area of what you had to build was enormous. So do you remember how you thought about as a team taking all that customer input into actually sorting and organizing what you were going to build when? Yeah, totally. So I guess one thing that I would say is Dylan was great at this. Figma didn't have a PM for years after we launched. And that, of course, we did have a PM and that was Dylan. And so he was really good at being able to synthesize all that information and think about like, okay, what are the things where there's like saying, I need this, I need this, I need this, and what's the most important thing. And we did also rally around, especially in those early days, we all just really believed that multiplayer was going to be the most important thing because it was going to take so long for us to check every single box that someone could come up with to compare us to another tool to have these features. But what we believed was that if they could experience the benefits of multiplayer, then that would be enough. 
and they would get over and deal with some of the inconveniences of not having some of these other features because they got so much benefit from basically not having versions of files and being able to collaborate with each other at the same time. So we really kind of bet the farm on multiplayer too and, and listened to everything else and all the other features, but really prioritized making sure that that was where our focus was. So the last thing that we haven't fully dug into in this kind of three pillar system that you outlined is the idea of being bottoms up oriented. And I think now, I mean, back then it was probably a little bit of a buzzword and now it's really become a buzzword. And maybe in the early days, it was a company like Atlassian that was doing it when it was completely non-consensus. But when you think about how you operationalize that or things that you did that actually made it work so well, because I feel like everyone wants bottoms up adoption. And there are a few companies that are able to do it in this compounding style like Atlassian and like Figma. And so were there things that you did either from a go-to-market, a marketing perspective, a community perspective, or a product perspective that you think really made this work for you all? Yeah, I think it's a total approach to building a company and to building a go-to-market. So if I were to think about how we did this, for us, we realized it a little bit later in the phase of the company. So if the first phase, community-led growth is building credibility. The second phase is you're having early evangelists. I would say you don't actually start realizing a bottoms-up that's a bottoms up is working until later when you're actually introduced pricing. And for us, that wasn't until two years afterwards. And so it really was, if you think about it, those first two years before we introduced pricing that allowed us to be bottoms up. And also remember, we didn't introduce a sales team at this point. So at two years, we had self-serve. And then at four years is when we introduced sales. So at two years is when we're starting to like, okay, we have all these people. We've been building this credibility, building these relationships for two years. Now we're starting pricing and we, we flipped the switch. And when you think about what that looked like, we never at this time still, we didn't focus on teams. We never focused on teams. We always focused on individuals. And so the relationship with individuals was how we would then go into a company. And so we weren't selling teams. We weren't pitching teams. We only talked to individuals and then empowered those people to then bring Figma into their company. And that was our approach. And that's what we did. And it was working. And just to give you an example of what that looked like tactically, the designer advocates were how we did that. And so at this point, Tom became our next designer advocate. So Bryn had left. Bryn started his own company that later got acquired by GitHub, which was wonderful. And we had another person come in to who now leads our designer advocate team, whose name is Tom. And Tom, he was doing these things that you think to yourself, like, this does not scale. Just talking to users and having these one-on-one relationships. But just to see how that works, Tom would go to a meetup in Seattle with someone, Parker. So Parker was this person who was just like, I don't get it. Figma's not here. I'm a sketch user, 100%. Like, why would I use Figma? He would spend a long time talking to Parker over months. So they would talk to each other. He'd listen to why Figma wasn't ready. He'd like zoom out and unpack the problem. Figma would, in the meantime, launch more features. He'd reach out back again. They'd connect. Eventually, Tom flips Parker. And so Parker becomes a staunch Figma advocate. Parker's then the one who brings Figma into Uber. And then it was all about how do we enable Parker to bring Figma into Uber? And it did. And Parker was our first user at Uber. But then to see again what this looks like, Parker eventually leaves Uber, right? And then Parker goes to Oracle. And then what happens next? Parker reaches back out to Tom and is like, okay, I'm ready to bring Figma into Oracle. Can you help me? 
and that's what we did. That's what it happened, what it looked like. And so we were never selling to going into the front doors of these organizations and selling. We were working with the individuals and then helping them, empowering them to bring Figment to the organizations. And that sounds like really unscalable work. But the thing was, we did it enough times and those people then did it enough times and those people did it enough times like in this expanding network effect that it actually did scale. And that's so much of for years of how we got when we finally did introduce the sales team or all of our self-serve revenue was organic and people coming to the website saying just like, help me bring Figment to my organization. And that's what it actually looked like in practice. When you think about kind of this bottoms up incredible success that you had where you have a Parker start to use the product in maybe solo mode and then recruit in his or her colleagues around them. Did you think a lot about getting non-designers at some point in the product and other stakeholders in some sort of intentional way? Or was that just organic when you start to have product managers coming in and marketers and other people? Yeah, we definitely did think about it. Like Figma spent a lot of energy on things like comments and presentation mode. Like those things became really important. But I would say that, especially in this phase, we were really true to the core designer and making sure that they were happy and that their needs were taken care of. And then they were the ones who really did the hard work for us of bringing in the non-designers because it was easier for them. And then they didn't have to do as much work. That worked out really well for us. So you mentioned this in passing briefly, but really curious, what was like V1 of the way that you approach pricing? You mentioned, I think that it was kind of a couple years post this launch moment that it was free. And then you got together and put out your first paid offering. What was that whole process like? It was hard. Like I think we knew we wanted to always have a free tier. And so the next thing we thought about was like, okay, where do we gate? Where do we gate from being free to charging? And so the way that we did it the first time around was really oriented around like, okay, what are the things that you would need to do as a team versus needing to do as an individual? So the first pricing model that we had out, we had a, a starter team that you could use. So we had a free tier that was free. And then we also had a free starter tier where you could have so many people collaborating in a file together and have unlimited projects. And then in the actual paid tier is where we put what became really important was this concept of libraries. So in design, if you think about it, you have some things that you're always using, like the like button or a sign up button or certain colors that you have. If a designer creates that from scratch every time, it's kind of a waste of time. So designers have these things called design systems and they have teams of people who are making design systems where they'll have a standardized component of a button or of a login screen. And then as a designer, you can pull those into your product and then it saves you a lot of time and it also makes it more efficient when you go to code it because it's all standardized. And then you can just think about you know actually solving the design problem. And so we put in all of the things that you'd need around collaboration, around working together as a team into the paid offering. What was the actual internal process to land on this early version of pricing? And where did you find the most tension? I think what jumps to mind for me is you always have this balance of you want people to come in and get the magic of a number of different parts of the product. And often the things that they most love is also the things that over time you want to charge for. And so there's both gating. So unless you are a paid user, you can't use this feature. And then there's also trialing. You can get access to all of these things and then we take it away from you unless you pay. And so curious, like what that actually looked like from a process perspective to sort of land on that early approach to pricing and gating. So 
I think it was pretty clear for us that we wanted libraries to be paid and we wanted a free tier. But what we didn't know, what was what the kind of starter tier would look like. And that's where it's like, okay, you're working in a team. We want you to test out some of the great things that are in our product. But yeah, we want you to also upgrade. And so I think it was a lot of kind of gotten intuition the first time around. But I would say we changed it later. And so what we realized is exactly what you're saying. For us, the thing that we really needed people to do, and I've talked about this a couple of times, is collaborate with each other in a file. In our team, our starter team, we initially had the gate be that you'd only have two people collaborating with each other and you could have unlimited number of files. But what we realized was that actually wasn't great because you were encouraging small teams or very, very small teams to work together in the starter tier but we weren't encouraging people to experience that magic moment of collaboration. So later we ended up doing a refresh of what that starter tier looked like and we switched it so that you could only have a couple files within the starter team, but you could have unlimited number of people collaborating in the file because you're right, we needed to be able to experience that magic moment of collaborating with each other. And so I would say that's something we learned over time and then switched when we realized that. And maybe to sort of abstract this a little bit, but if from time to time you get founders or marketers or go-to-market leaders reaching out and they're putting together their first approach to pricing, are there big ideas or things that you tend to say over and over again in terms of guiding them or increasing their chances of doing it well? I think it all comes down to that magic moment. And it's interesting because when we first did our pricing model, we didn't actually know for sure. We didn't have like the data to show that magic moment. We didn't have enough users to even show that. But we just had this intuition that that was the thing of all the things that was going to get people to use the tool. And so, so much of this is like, okay, how do you funnel people towards your magic moment and get to them to experience that as quickly as possible? And I think that's like the thing that I always think about and not gate your magic moment. So you mentioned that it was a number of years before you brought in salespeople or maybe more traditional go-to-market kind of people. What was the story behind that decision and, and how did you all approach those first few hires? Yeah. So we introduced our sales team. I think it was or started selling four years after we launched out of stealth. Eventually, you get to a point where we care, you know, so much of our emotion was working with individuals, empowering them to bring Figment to their organizations. But eventually, we got to the point where you think about Microsoft and Google and, and some of these other big companies. Eventually, you know, you do have security and procurement and people who realize that the tool is being used throughout the company and need someone to help them. These individual champions need someone to help them navigate things like security. And we had to have all of those features. And so it became really obvious to us. Like you think about one example of this was Microsoft. We'd look at these graphs of all of everyone within Microsoft and the Microsoft domains. And we had clusters of people using Figma at Microsoft all over the organization, but they weren't connected to each other at all. Pockets of it had popped up organically. People had been putting it on their credit cards all over the organization. And when you look at stuff like that, it became really obvious to us like, okay, there's an opportunity here to come in at the enterprise level and actually work with procurement. But the data and the usage is what dictated that. It wasn't like we just decided like, oh yeah, we should definitely introduce a sales team now. We got really far with self-serve before ever thinking about sales. And do you think in hindsight, that was the right decision? Yes, (laughs) I do at least. I think it's like, okay, so when our sales team finally did come in, what they were doing, they had so many leads, right? They had so many people to sell to, and it allowed them to really be set up to be these experts who were helping 
people navigate their own internal orgs or move through security or move through contracts. It wasn't a hard sell. It was never a hard sell. It was, okay, person who's the internal champion at Microsoft, I just want to help unblock you. And so our sales team was able to just come in as these helpers as opposed to having to do hard sells. And for years, we really didn't do paid marketing either. We had so much organic inbound and people just going to our web form saying, will you help unblock me and to bring Figma into my whole company, that that was enough leads to feed our sales team. And so it really allowed us to have this really collaborative, consultative process as opposed to going outbound immediately or having to do paid to feed some MQL goal. To this day, do you only call on and support accounts where people are knocking on your door or there's part of the sales motion that is knocking on the door of Coca-Cola or Ford or whomever? It's a mix, I would say. As we grow, of course, you know, our sales team is much, much bigger at this phase than it was when we were first introduced. And at some point, eventually, we do want to look at like, okay, how do we go to these organizations? Whether they're a lot of times though, we'll go to these organizations, whether that be Ford, who is a user or or Coca-Cola, and be like, okay, like, is anyone using this? Has anyone signed up yet? And talk to those people. And so it is definitely a combination of inbound and outbound, but even our outbound is often largely within our free user base. Someone's tried it or has got an idea about this or uses this for something, even if the whole organization hasn't adopted. Thanks so much for coming on, Claire, and sharing all this with us. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks for the opportunity. 